0: When you're in elementary school and middle school, you take standardized tests, and often on those standardized tests, there are, there are questions related to patterns, so that you can, to, to see if you can notice a pattern, and if you can, then to see what comes next. So we're going to do that, just, uh, we're going to do a couple, couple questions related to patterns. I'm going to put one up here on the screen. So rectangle, rectangle, triangle, rectangle, rectangle, triangle. do you know what comes next? Yes, I have insulted you, I know. Rectangle, good. Here's another one. Now this one's really supposed to trick Wayne at the next service, but I bet you guys are going to get this one. Can you guess what number comes next? Ooh, four, good, good, four, all right. It's the red, it's the question mark, it was all supposed to be tricky. It's the four comes next. Right? Did I, am I seeing that right? Good. Okay. I'm there. I'm there. just making sure now I'm, I get it. Uh, so th- these are patterns where you see, you see some things repeated. That's what Mark does in his gospel. He will often lay out a pattern to then make a larger point, and he wants the reader to see the pattern over time. It's, it's how he puts together the scenes of Jesus' life to tell us something larger about Not only Jesus, but then the kingdom of God. I want you to see how that looked in chapters 8, 9, and 10. So over several weeks, we looked at those three chapters, and we saw a pattern. So in chapter 8, we noticed that Peter couldn't see, couldn't understand Jesus, but all of a sudden, a blind man could see by faith. Then in chapter 9, we saw that the disciples, again, could not see clearly. They could not understand Jesus, but a child could see with humility. Then in chapter 10, James and John, if you remember, he, they came wanting the, to be the greatest of all the disciples. They couldn't understand what Jesus was doing. They couldn't see him clearly. But then right after that story, Mark puts the healing of the blind man, Bartimaeus, who sees by faith. Three times, three chapters, we see a pattern of contrast where the people we would expect to see are blind, but the people who are blind or should not see are the very ones who see clearly. And so Mark is making a point along the way in these three chapters as he lays out the pattern of contrast. Today, he's going to lay out another pattern. We're going to see three scenes. So we're covering a lot of ground today. And we're going to see the first two scenes contrast with the third scene. It's a pattern that Mark lays out so that we laser focus on the third scene, which is really the point that we learn something about Jesus and the kingdom. So we pick up first scene. First scene, Mark chapter 12. We'll pick up in verse 13, Mark chapter 12. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription?" Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at it. That's the first scene. And we're going to notice two things in the first scene. This is the first of a pattern Mark lays out. The first thing I notice when we see this scene is that the outside is different than the inside. So the thing, the question is actually not the real intent. So they come with, a, with saying something they actually don't mean. Really what they're doing is they want to catch Jesus. And he sees right through the outside of the question and gets to their heart, knowing they're trying to trap him. The second thing I see in the scene is that Jesus reveals a deeper truth. So what they want is they want this like right-wrong answer. Do you do it or you don't do it? And they really give them two options. And Jesus doesn't go with either. He actually drives it something deeper. This is important for us to see because of the way the pattern is going to be laid out here. What's interesting is that when Jesus asks this question about the image, we know that the coin has the image of Caesar on it. The 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 other part of the answer is, well, then who has God's image on them? So if you're supposed to give back to God the thing that has God's image, well, then what's that? We know that the coin is Caesar's, but what's God's? Now, we just assume that that just means other money that needs to go to the temple. But I think Jesus is driving at something deeper. So he goes a layer underneath. And I just want to make a quick summary because we could have spent a whole sermon just on this passage. But again, I want to see the larger context. One scholar says this about this image piece and giving back to God. Because humans bear God's image, all humans owe themselves their very lives to God and should give those lives back as one might give a coin back to Caesar. Also, he was saying that standing there in the temple courtyards that the sacrificial system, which was supposed to be the way of giving God his due, needed to be superseded by a more complete worship. So they wanted an answer that sat on the surface. Jesus drove deep to the inside and said, actually, you are supposed to give yourself to God, not just an animal, not just money to the temple, you give all of yourself because you, as a human, have the image of God stamped on you. I just want to notice, those two things are playing out in this scene. Let's go to the next one. Second scene, next passage, next part of the, story, the, the pattern. We'll start with verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. And it was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not an heir because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the burning bush how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. So here in the second scene, we see those same two things in play. The first, we see that the outside is different than the inside. These are the Sadducees. The Sadducees are those that hold political power with the Romans in Jerusalem. They have no interest in a revolutionary leader gaining any power. And so now they put a question to him to trap him in his understanding of the resurrection. The Sadducees, they don't believe in a resurrection. And here they come with a question to catch him in his words. And they here they, they want to create uh, disagreement with other Jewish leaders that are there watching as Jesus answers the question. And so the, Jesus immediately sees the question on the outside is definitely not what is going on on their inside. And then the second thing is also true that we saw in the first scene, and that is that Jesus reveals this deeper truth. They want to know who, like who, exactly what husband will be married to that woman, because they can't all be married to that woman. And Jesus actually doesn't even answer the question. He goes to something deeper. He drives to a fuller vision of the kingdom of God. He says, actually, at the resurrection, in the age to come, reality will actually look very different than what you think it will. As one scholar puts it, he says this, the resurrection will not simply reproduce every aspect of our present humanity. It will be recognizable and re-embodied human existence. But a great change will have taken place as well. So much so that there won't actually be marriage as we understand marriage. There'll be something fuller. There's this greater vision in play. But here in both scenes, what we see on the outside is really not what's going on on the inside of the questioners. And in both cases, Jesus does not answer the question in a right-wrong scenario. He actually drives to something deeper. So if we had to, if we had to see those two scenes in the pattern, I want to show it to you this way. In the first scene, we see a tricky question, and then we see Jesus drive for deeper truth. Then in the next scene, we see a tricky question. Again, deeper truth. Don't put the next slide up yet. Yeah, don't put that. I want us to think through, I want us to think through, if we're following Mark and his pattern of contrasts that we see throughout the gospel, we would expect at this point, as he is built to this point, we'd see the opposite in the third and final scene. The one that we really, really, Mark wants the reader to pay attention to. It would be then, let's put the slide up, it wouldn't be a tricky question, it would be a sincere question. And it wouldn't be a deeper truth, it would be the deepest truth. Now that, again, is if we, are, if we follow the pattern Mark lays out, where he lays one thing up against another to teach us something, so that he highlights something about Jesus and the kingdom, in the way that he puts together the story. And that's exactly what happens here. We see a building of two tricky questions with deeper truths leading us to the very thing Mark wants us to see, which is going to be a sincere question which leads us to the deepest truth. And it's actually going to be the thing that Mark wants to highlight as he continues to frame the story of Jesus that is taking us to the cross and resurrection. Take a look. Third scene, here it is. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You were right in saying that God is one and there's no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And then, and then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Now, that last phrase tips us off that that's the close of these three scenes. That's the close of the pattern. No one else asked him any more questions. So it's a way of Mark tipping off the reader to close off the pattern. Interesting, then, that this man asked a simple question and the bulk of the content was Jesus, unlike the long questions asked by the other questioners. And then there's this interesting place where the questioner comes back with a response, and he adds. He adds the layer that made all the difference. I want to just make sure we get it clearly here. Let me say it this way. But the key moment in the scene is not when the man agrees with Jesus, but it's when he understands that God wants a person's heart, not just their outward rituals and rule-keeping. That's why he's not far from the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus didn't say anything about burnt offerings. The man took what Jesus said, he brought his response to note, God has always wanted the heart. Most of religious history is filled up with rules and regulations and legalism. You do this, you keep this rule, you make this sacrifice, you appease the angry gods, and you move on with your day. But here this man understands that the God of Israel has always been grabbing for people's hearts. Now, why this is so important is because just like we've seen over the last several weeks, that one phrase links us. It's a hyperlink to the Old Testament. This point that God is always wanting the human heart more than sacrifices is woven into the Old Testament. And this is a link back to all of those declarations of what God really wants. So I want you to take a look at just a couple famous passages. You probably, you may know these. Micah 6, 6-8. Here the prophet Micah, verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That passage is keyed in to this response from the teacher of the law. There's a reason Mark records that phrase out of the teacher's response. We can imagine that these people said a lot more than what is recorded. But the author records what will bring meaning and significance to make a point. And here we're keyed in to this passage. This is what God has always wanted. And Hosea, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And This is from the New Living Translation, which I think gets the broader sense of this verse. I want to show you love. This is God talking. I want to show you love. I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. God wants your heart, not all of your legalism. You can keep all the rules and not want God, but it's very hard to want God and not keep all the rules. If you get love, you get everything else. You get the rules, you can leave love behind. This is a major point. Now, you know the problem with this, don't you? The human heart has been poisoned by evil. Ever since Adam and Eve decided they wanted to be God, they poisoned the rest rest of us. And so the only way you're getting that kind of love is if you and I get a new heart. You know, the problem with getting a new heart is that we can't do it by ourselves. And so woven together with God's desire for love is His promise... That he would give you the heart to do it. You see, he wants this, but you and I can't do it by ourselves, so he makes the promise he would do it. Just two passages, just two passages where you see this in the Old Testament. Because this is all keyed in, all linked in to this scene, this third and final scene. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. God speaking, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And then Jeremiah chapter 31, verses thirty-three through 31 through 33, an excerpt from that, those verses, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. I will put my law on their minds. I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. So when the teacher of the law says, ah, you're right, Jesus. Love your God with all you have and love your neighbor as yourself. That is more important than all the burnt sacrifices in the world, that there frame." The rest of the story, that we will walk with Jesus. Jesus came to do that very thing. This whole talk about forgiveness of sins, sometimes we can leave that in this like religious world or we can leave it up in the sky as if it has no application. The reason the forgiveness of sins matters is because it's keyed in to loving God with your heart, like who you are. And you getting a heart, a new heart to do that, like in your real life. And so, as one scholar puts it, in this third scene, Jesus is saying something about what he came to do. Take a look at what this scholar says. Jesus really did believe that through his kingdom mission, Israel's God would enable people to worship and love him and to love one another in a new way, the way promised in the prophets, the way that stemmed from renewed hearts and lives. So when we get to the cross and we see Jesus dying for the sins of the world, we need to have this scripture etched into our mind. That that not only is love, he does it so that he can give people a new heart and to love that same way. So what in the world would application be on this? This is a tough one. I mean, these are the two greatest commands. How are we going to make application in the next five minutes on the two greatest commands in the world? Well, we'll give it a shot. Here we go. I'm going to say this. So this comes from my own experience. Maybe you can relate. It's a lot easier to say love God and love others than it is to actually do it in ordinary life. Now, when I say ordinary life, I mean the life you actually live in your house. Like when you're tired and your parent tells you to do something. Like what happens then? Real life. Real life. That's what happens. Or you don't get much sleep the night before, and then your spouse says something, says something a little passive aggressive, what are you going to do? Yeah, it's real life. It's real life. What's that going to, what's that look like? So it's a, it would be really easy for me as the pastor to come with all of my religious vibrato and just say, love God and love others and make you feel really good about it. And then you'll go home and you'll have an argument with someone you love. Like that's usually how this works. So it's a lot easier to say these things than to work this out. So what in the world do we do about that? Well, I really don't have a clear answer on this one. I mean, these are the two great commands. Like, this is the point of all Scripture. How do you boil that down? Well, I don't have a full answer. I just have a couple things. I think these are a couple things we can do. This is not a magic bullet. These are just some things I think we, that can help us move in the right direction. I think we can ask God to help us to love him more and more. Like, I think a good place for us to be is to acknowledge how messed up we are and to go to him and ask for help. Like, this isn't, this isn't pull yourself up by your bootstraps and love because that's what you're supposed to do. We can't do that on our own. So we've got to ask for help. Now, this seems, this seems a bit easier because it doesn't seem like real help. Like, when you're sick or you don't know how to do something in your house, many of us don't want to ask for help. Like, we resist that. Or, uh, you know, you you need a meal because you can't cook, but you really don't ask anyone for a meal and, you know, put someone else out. You know, these kind of things. But, you know, when it comes to God, this seems really easy. But, I mean, honestly, what would it be to just acknowledge, I don't have this together, God, I need your help. Like, if you go to that place where you acknowledge you really need help, that's a harder place to go. But that's really, I'm suggesting that's one place we can go. God, like, I need help loving other people. And you might want to put a name to that. I need help loving, and then pick that person. Just pick that, Brandy. You cannot point at anyone. (laughs) I see Brandy looking around like I am ready. (laughs) I got my name. All right, okay. So here's the second thing. Here's the second thing we can do. Choose to be inconvenient so we can help someone in need. Now, the inconvenience is where that becomes real. It is easy to help people when it makes you look good or feel good. It is not easy when you're inconvenienced. So press in on the inconvenience. All right, let's go with the next step. Ask God to show you how you can love him and others more. i got to be honest, I not really know. How do you take all of this to a next step that we can do? So I'm going with the request. I think it's something we can do. We can ask God. But it's this show us. It's the show us. So be ready, if you pray that prayer, for something to come up in your life that is uncomfortable, some type of disconnect, maybe an argument, maybe something wrong inside of you that you need to move a little bit further towards love. If you and I ask God to help us see how we can love more, he's probably going to reveal places where we need some work. And then he's probably going to stir you on the how. So maybe, just maybe, you need to go the extra mile when someone makes a request of you. And that's how you need to do it. This is going to lean more on intuition than it is reason. This one's a little harder. But you and I know what it feels like to have the gut sense of what we need to do. You just know, I need to do this. Now, often we resist that, and then we usually get in trouble. Like, You know, I know many times I know what I need to do at home or how I could love Tess well, and then I just don't do it, and that's usually where we have the conflict. So we're asking God, show me how to love more and more. And just kind of lean on him to help us with that. These are the two biggest commands. I don't know exactly how to work this down into life at the snap of a finger. So what we're trying to work towards is a process where we grow deep roots slowly. That's how love grows. It's just the way things work in God's kingdom here on earth. Now, one day, this won't be a problem. It'll be like breathing. We will love like breathing. But right now, we still got a lot of selfishness to work out. And we got a lot of pain. And some of us have been really hurt or disappointed. So this just takes time. So we ask God, help me on how to love more. And we lean on him to show us. But this next step doesn't work unless you actually do it so we'll lean in on him as you do it all right let me pray for us father we thank you again how mark has put together the story of the life of jesus we thank you that he has set up the pattern to really press in on these two great commands and we know that jesus your son died to give us a new heart so we would love love you fully and love one another Sincerely, and we're going to need your help with that because uh, there are just there's just a lot of things that go wrong in the human heart. Keep working with us, be patient with us, and work with us as we go home and we live ordinary life. Help us to love, and so we'll lean in on you this week as we take in these two commands and let them marinate and grow even a little deeper inside of us. We pray that under the authority of Jesus our shepherd, a friend, and our master. And together we sing.